Welcome to Building Insight, brought to you by the lawyers at Glayhold Voles LLP. Building Insight is Canada's first podcast dedicated to construction law and dispute resolution. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Welcome to the Glayholt Bulls LLP podcast, Building Insight. I'm Brandon Keshin, an associate at Glayholt Bulls, and I'm here with my fellow associate, Neil Altman. Thanks, Brandon. The topic of today's podcast is going to be the law of bidding and tendering. Thanks, Neil. This is a great topic. In my view, it's one of the most interesting and important parts of a construction project's life cycle. It's very early on. Hopefully, there haven't been too many bumps in the road on the way to tender or disputes at all. So I have to think of the bidding and tendering phase as sort of setting the stage for construction, but it also sets the tone between the parties' relationships on and off-site. So it's a critically important process, and I think the courts would agree based on the amount of traction these issues have in the courts, especially in our Supreme Court. So we want to spend some time today going over the relatively recent court decisions in this area and highlight a few issues that the courts have shed some guidance on. But before we get into these narrower issues and recent developments, we think it would probably be a good idea to first take a step back and talk about bidding and tendering more generally. Brandon, perhaps I'll start with just a quick overview of the bidding and tendering process and why a party might choose to tender out a contract versus negotiate one-on-one. And for a little bit of context, All of what we're going to be discussing today uh, can be found in the textbook, Bidding and Tendering, What is the Law?, which is authored by Paul Sandori and William M. Pigott, and it's edited by Glayholt Bowles LLP, our firm. So I'll start by saying that bidding and tendering is an owner-facilitated process, meaning that the owner of an infrastructure project or a construction project is the one that initiates the process. And what it does is it entertains the market to get the best deal. So an owner will reach out and entertain offers on the scope of work that it needs in order to get the best deal for that scope of work in constructing the scope of work. And it occurs at the early stage of a project. It's generally what initiates the project. You need to hire the contractor, subcontractor before you can get started on the work. And what it involves is a number of contractors or even subcontractors bidding for a construction contract based on the identified scope that the owner outlines. Yeah, that's correct, Neil. And I think it's important from a business standpoint, at least, in terms of why an owner may want to bid out a project versus negotiate one-on-one. So in theory, the bidding and tendering process allows the owner to tap into the market, and ideally it should put themselves in the best position to secure the most favorable price. And perhaps I'll also just add quickly that The tendering process typically starts with the owner issuing a call for tenders. And in this call for tenders package, typically there'll be what's referred to as instructions to bidders. Now, the instructions to bidders governs the bidding process. It will typically describe the project, the scope of work that's being bid on, and perhaps most importantly for our purposes, it will contain a set of rules governing the tendering process. And all parties must adhere to the terms of the call for tenders and the instructions to bidders. Prior to the 1980s, issuing a call for tenders was treated by the courts as an invitation to treat or an offer to enter into contractual negotiations. So there were no legal strings attached to the call for tenders, so to speak. And prior to the 1980s, a contractor's submission of a bid in response to a call for tenders was treated as an offer, and which we know the law allows to be revoked prior to acceptance, subject to any period of irrevocability. And problematically, this resulted in a very inefficient and dispute-invoking process. So what was happening was contractors were submitting bids and later withdrawing bids before they were either assessed or accepted or rejected by the owner. 
in essence, it defeated the owner's purpose of engaging the market because the market was effectively so volatile and public owners who were funding these projects with taxpayer dollars were losing money, which at the end of the day wasn't in the public's best interest. So when the Supreme Court had their chance in what became the seminal decision in Ron Engineering, the court sought to protect the integrity of the bidding system. And they did this by introducing what's now known as the contract A, contract B analysis. So unlike prior to the 1980s, where a call for tenders was considered an invitation to treat, the law now treats a call for tenders as a unilateral offer to receive and consider bids. And a preliminary contract or contract A is formed once a contractor responds to a call for tenders and submits a bid. Now with any contract, contract A is governed by both the terms of the tender call or the instructions of bidders and a set of terms that the common law has implied. So Neil, maybe I'll pass it over to you and you can highlight a few of these implied terms for our listeners. Yeah, of course. Thanks, Brandon. So first and foremost, the terms and conditions that govern contract A or the tendering process are set out in the call for tenders package in the instructions to bidders specifically. And like any other contract, parties to the tendering process, so both owners and bidders, must abide by the terms and conditions of contract A or they will be found to be in breach of the contract. Although Canadian law has not recognized the general duty to bargain in good faith, the law is developed so that the bidding process is governed by certain implied terms. One of these implied terms is an owner's duty to treat and assess all compliant bids fairly and uniformly. In practice, this duty of fairness prohibits an owner from awarding contract B or the construction contract to a bidder based on any criteria other than those expressed in and implied by the tender documents. So essentially, if an owner in the tender doesn't indicate that this is a criteria that a bidder is going to be evaluated in, they can't then rely on this non-disclosed criteria to award a bid at a later stage. Owners are also prevented from bid shopping or using the lowest compliant bid to negotiate a better price of terms with the second lowest bidder or other compliant bidders. So likewise, an owner can't have all these contractors essentially bid against each other. And then once these bids are submitted, then say, oh, well, this party offered this. If you can get your bid down to this, then we'll accept your bid. Once the bids are submitted, that's all that the owner is able to consider. So since the Supreme Court put forth the contract A, contract B analysis and recognized these certain implied duties governing the tender process, there have been some developments in the law that Brandon and I would like to discuss. One of these developments, which Brandon is going to discuss in more detail, is the distinction between an RFP and a call for tenders. Yeah, thanks, Neil. So this is a critically important distinction between the two terms. And from a practical standpoint, an owner who wants to negotiate with a group of contractors or request proposals without engaging the legal implications of the contract A, contract B analysis, they need to be mindful of the difference between the competitive bidding process versus an owner who wants to negotiate with contractors on a first instance basis. The difference between the call for tenders and an RFP or request for proposals is set out in the decision of Justice Faraday's in Sokonov Inc. and Northwest Territories Commissioner. So, quote, if there's a distinction between the two forms of soliciting offers, it may be this. When the government knows what it wants done and how it should be done, such as a construction project, it will already have its plans and specifications and is looking simply for the best price. On the other hand, when the government knows what it wants done, but not how to go about doing it, it seeks proposals on methods, ability, and price. Then it can negotiate on the best method to achieve the best value. An RFP is simply an offer to negotiate and gives rise to no contractual obligations. This is contrasted with the tendering process, which creates a preliminary contractual relationship between the owner and the bidders, 
known as contract A. So the reality is that even though there is a legal difference between RFPs and calls for tenders in the sense of a competitive bidding process, the use of these terms aren't really helpful because, as you can see in the jurisprudence, these terms are really used interchangeably without much of a difference, even though there is a difference. So more importantly, the British Columbia Supreme Court in Turcon Contractors Limited and British Columbia sets out six factors to be used to determine whether an RFP will give rise to the contractual obligations of the tender process. Uh, the first is a formality of the RFP process. The second is whether there is a deadline for submissions. The third is whether bids and proposals are required to be irrevocable. The fourth is whether there is a duty on the owner to award the project contract. The fifth is whether the project contract has specific conditions not open to negotiation. And lastly, the sixth condition is whether there's a statement within the RFP indicating that the RFP was not a call for tenders. Yeah, thanks, Neil. Another issue we see in the case law and in practice is some uncertainty over what constitutes a compliant bid. So as we previously discussed, there's an implied term in the tendering process that an owner can only consider and accept compliant bids. So again, when an owner issues a call for tenders, which forms the contract A, contract B scenario, that call for tenders is treated at law as an offer. And the submission of a compliant bid by a bidder constitutes acceptance of that offer and contract A is now formed. However, were a bidder to submit a bid that does not comply with the instructions to bidders or the common law implied terms, then the law does not recognize contract A being formed. So more and more, we see the use of discretion clauses in their call for tenders package, which essentially allows an owner or whoever's issuing the call for tenders to waive mere irregularities and accept a non-compliant bid. However, even with the increased use of waiver and discretion clauses, there's still uncertainty among parties over what distinguishes a compliant bid from a non-compliant bid. And in 2019, the Ontario Court Appeal in Reaction Distributing Inc. in Algonquin Highlands distinguished between the treatment of bids that contain mere irregularities versus bids that are non-compliant. And I'll quickly go over the facts of this case. So Reaction submitted a bid to the township of Algonquin Highlands. And in terms of the tender process required that all tenders be submitted in a sealed envelope with the company's name and return address marked on the outside. Reaction submitted their bid in a three-ring binder contained in a box. The box was not labeled on the outside with Reaction's name, nor was it labeled with a return address. This contravened the tender terms. While the terms of the tender process permitted the township to waive non-compliance, they chose not to do so in this case and disqualified Reaction's tender on the grounds that the bid was non-compliant. The township then awarded the contract to the only other company who submitted a tender. And had Reaction's tender been considered by the township, Reaction's tender would have been the lowest and it would have won the work. Reaction then sued the township for breach of contract. And Reaction was successful at trial, and the trial court found that the unlabeled box and lack of a sealed envelope were mere irregularities. The judge held that Reaction's tender was substantially compliant with the contractual tender requirements, and the township's decision to disqualify Reaction breached the tender contract. But the trial court also held that township had not acted in good faith when rejecting Reaction's tender. And since Reaction's price was lower than its only other competitor, Reaction would have won the work. The result was a judgment for damages in favor of Reaction for approximately 71000 in lost profit. And the township appealed on three issues, but proceeded with argument on only two issues and lost its appeal on both counts. 
And the first issue on appeal was whether the trial judge erred in finding a breach of contract. Referring to the Supreme Court of Canada's decision in Double N Earth Movers, the Ontario Court of Appeal restated that the law is that substantial compliance is a test to be applied in considering tender requirements. The appeal court did not consider whether the other contractual requirements for a sealed envelope, labeled name, or labeled return address were immaterial. The appeal court only upheld the trial judge's finding that the breach itself, the unlabeled box, was a mere irregularity. One thing that this decision highlights is that when it comes to bid compliance, the substance of a bid trumps its form. Or in other words, owners cannot lawfully disqualify bids that remain substantially compliant with the terms of tender. And such disqualifications may constitute a breach of the tender contract. And as we saw in this case, it can also lead to an adverse award of damages. Also, from a practical standpoint, as a caution for procurement staff, if you're going to disqualify a bid for non-compliance in circumstances where the terms of tender allow an owner to waive non-compliance, they must be prepared to provide evidence in court that supports why you chose not to waive the non-compliance in that case. And a failure to have sound reasoning behind that decision could expose an owner to the avoidable risk of litigation or an alternative legal proceeding like arbitration. So moving on to our second subtopic, another issue we see in the case law are disputes around the time of bid submittal. So on this topic of late bids, Brandon, this issue in the case law has been the one minute interval immediately after the deadline for bid submittal. How does the court interpret this issue of irregularities and substantial compliance? If a deadline to submit a bid is 3 p.m. and the bidder submits its bid several seconds later, but before the clock strikes 3.01 p.m., is the bid late? Yeah, it's, it seems like a trivial topic at first, but as we see in practice and as we see from the case law, there are significant consequences to parties that submit a late bid. And as the following case I'll focus on demonstrates, the law typically treats a late bid as non-compliant. And a bidder that submits a late bid often has their bid disqualified and it results in all their efforts participating in the bidding process and all the time and effort that goes into it just going down the drain and being wasted. So when it comes to interpreting the tender call and the instructions to bidders, it's often not clear whose interpretation is correct. Is it the owners or the contractors? And in 2015, the Yukon Court of Appeal considered this exact issue in the Yukon Department of Highways and Public Works and PS Sidhu Trucking Limited. And starting with the facts of this case, so the Yukon government issued tenders for the construction of the replacement of a bridge. And the instructions to bidder stated that the tender closing date was 4 p.m. local time, the 6th of August, 2013. And that in order to be considered, tenders must be received before the specified time. Tenders received after this time will not be considered regardless of the reason for their being late and will be returned to the bidder unopened. And a representative of the appellant bidder, P.S. Sidhu, arrived at the procurement support center at approximately 3.55 p.m., so five minutes before the deadline. And at this point in time, P.S. Sidhu had only one item left to complete on the tender, which was to total the projected prices and insert the total into the bottom line on page four of the tender. So with three items left to complete, the representative P.S. Sidhu ran into calculator problems. And he was advised by a department staff member that as long as the unit prices were all complete, along with their extensions, they could calculate the final total themselves. So the bidder left the final amount blank on the tender, placed the tender into an envelope, sealed it, and handed the envelope to the staff member, 
who received and timestamped the tender at 3.59 p.m. But as the representative was walking away from the counter, he began to have doubts about one of the numbers he included, and he requested to have the bid back, and he was advised that he could and that he had time until the clock tick 4.01. He took the bid back, made a small revision, resealed the envelope, and handed it back. This time, the timestamp said 4 p.m., so the government and two of the other bidders applied to the court for a determination whether P.S. Sidhu's bid was submitted in time. And the trial judge made two findings on this point. He held that a bid submitted at 4 p.m. was not submitted before 4 p.m. And he further held that the original bid submitted at 3.59 p.m. could not give rise to contract A once it had been withdrawn and revised by the bidder. So on appeal... The appellate court dismissed the appeal and held that the appeal was a moot because the contract had already been awarded to the next compliant bidder and the work had already been undertaken. And importantly, the appellate court further held that whether Yukon government's department staff acted improperly to the bidder's detriment would have to be addressed in other proceedings in light of the judge's finding that the appellant tender was late. So what's the takeaway from this case? Well, first, an owner can protect themselves against timing problems with clear express language in their instructions and tenders. So in particular, the time for bid submission or the deadline for bid submission, I should say, should be stated in terms of hours, minutes, and seconds. And to make the last second for bid submission clearer and free of argument or competing interpretations, the instructions to tender should also state that the bid shall be submitted no later than the deadline. And lastly, the instructions to tenderers should also provide that the time of bid closing is to be determined according to the owner's clock, whether it's accurate or not. So moving on, now that we've covered RFPs versus call for tenders and non-compliant bids and the time of bid submittal, I'll turn it over to Neil, who will highlight our third and final subtopic for this podcast. Thanks, Brandon. So... I think so far as the case law that you've discussed, we've been looking into the duties and obligations of an owner when issuing a tender, such as the right to treat all compliant bids equally or the right to review bids in good faith. However, this isn't the only area where the law has been recently developed. There's also a breadth of case law that pertains to what rights an owner has when putting out a tender. And one of these rights specifically that's kind of been discussed by the courts in the past couple of years is the right to prohibit a contractor from submitting a bid in response to a tender, which is otherwise known as a reprisal clause. Reprisal clauses have been used quite prevalently recently throughout Canada, with many cities and municipalities, including the City of Toronto, including them in their procurement policies and bylaws. So the question, I guess, is what is a reprisal clause? A reprisal clause is essentially a term or condition whereby an owner will refuse to accept tenders from any party that is or has been within a certain period of time which is typically two years, involved in legal proceedings with the owner. So in effect, an owner, whether they're public or private, can effectively blacklist certain parties, banning them from bidding on any of that owner's projects. For smaller municipalities, such a reprisal clause can have a huge toll, where smaller scale contractors rely on government projects as a large portion of their revenue stream. It's easy to imagine how punitive and damaging being on a blacklist can be. For this reason, obviously, reprisal clauses are very controversial. The Canadian Construction Association is strongly against the use of reprisal clauses, particularly for public projects funded with federal tax dollars. The CCA's position is that reprisal clauses are contrary to the principle of an open and fair tendering process that produced the most competitive price and efficient use of taxpayer dollars. 
So as the CCA is a national association, they're pursuing this issue with the federal government and asking that federal lawmakers pass a regulation or statute barring the use of reprisal policies in federal government procurement and potentially blocking reprisal policies at any level of government where the project is partially funded by the federal government. This issue is still obviously up in the air. However, the validity and constitutionality of reprisal clauses and debarment decisions have been discussed in two recent decisions, one of the British Columbia Court of Appeal and the other of the Ontario Superior Court of Justice Divisional Court. So the first case that I'm going to discuss for you today is this British Columbia Court of Appeal case, J. Cote and Son Excavating Limited and the City of Burnaby. And this decision was a decision by the Court of Appeal dealing with the constitutionality of reprisal clauses. It's kind of a sad set of acts, to be honest, because the defendant, City of Burnaby, awarded a sewer contract to the plaintiff, Jay Cote and Son Excavating Limited, in 2012. However, when Jay Cote was performing the contract, a retaining wall collapsed, which killed one of its employees. And a subsequent dispute arose between Jay Cote and the city regarding who was at fault for the accident, and more specifically, whether the accident was caused by a concealed condition as defined under the sewer contract. So... After the accident occurred, Jay Cote files a notice of dispute in accordance with the contract. And under the contract, the matter was referred to a referee for a non-binding hearing. At this non-binding hearing, the referee found that the city was at fault and recommended that the city pay Jay Cote for the full amount of its claim for damages resulting from the accident. The city, however, because as I said, the referee was non-binding, the city refused to pay Jay Cote's claim and also refused to engage in binding arbitration which essentially left Jay Cote with no choice but to commence an action in the British Columbia Supreme Court, which is somewhat of a deceiving name, but it's the lower court in British Columbia, to seek its damages arising from the accident. Two months after Jay Cote commenced its action, the city added a reprisal clause to the form of invitation to tender. And I'm going to read for you the reprisal clause right now so our listeners have an idea of exactly how they look. And this City of Burnaby's reprisal clause stated, Tenders will not be accepted by the City of Burnaby from any person, corporation, or legal entity if the party or any officer or director of a corporate party is or has been within a period of two years prior to the tender closing date engaged either directly or indirectly through another corporation or legal entity in a legal proceeding initiated in any court against the owner in relation to any contract with or works or services provided to the owner. And any such party is not eligible to submit a tender. So after the city amended their tender documents to include this reprisal clause, Jay Cote brought a second action against the city, challenging the constitutionality and common law validity of the reprisal clause. Essentially, Jay Cote's argument was that the reprisal clause infringed upon the constitutionally protected rule of law, it unjustifiably infringed upon its right of reasonable access to the courts, and was also contrary to public policy. Jay Cote's action was dismissed by the Supreme Court of British Columbia, went to the Court of Appeal, as already discussed, and its appeal was also dismissed by the British Columbia Court of Appeal. So I guess to better understand Jay Cote's argument, it's important to know what is the rule of law. And for anyone unaware, it's a set of three foundational principles of our justice system. The first being that law is supreme over both government officials and individual citizens, which essentially means that the law applies to everyone, both public and private actors. Uh, the second foundational principle of the rule of law is that the law shall create and maintain an actual order of positive laws, which preserves general order, which essentially just mean that legislation must exist to codify the laws and the rules of society. And lastly, 
which is kind of an, involves an interplay between the first two. The relationship between the state and the individual must be regulated by law, which essentially means that government actions must be legally founded. So Jay Cote's argument with respect to the rule of law is that the reprisal clause violated the rule of law because it held the city being a governmental body to a different legal standard than private actors. The reprisal clause allowed the city to disincentivize private citizens from taking legal action against it, regardless of whether or not said legal action is justified. The clause also created the possibility for situations where the city's actions were not regulated by law by precluding parties from taking legal action against it, even if its conduct was unlawful. The court disagreed with Jay Cote's argument, though, largely, and this is somewhat procedural, due to the fact that the rule of law cannot be an independent cause of action to invalidate the reprisal clause. So relying on past jurisprudence, the Court of Appeal held that the purpose of the unwritten rule of law is to ensure that the courts give effect to Canada's written constitution, which is meant to preserve the law. So essentially, the written constitution that we as Canadians already have in place is meant to codify the rule of law and meant to protect it. So unless the reprisal clause violated an express term of the constitution, it would not violate the rule of law. It's not the rule of law's place to essentially stand in the way of the already expressed terms of the Constitution to create an independent cause of action outside of the Constitution, which already codifies the rule of law, was essentially the court's argument. The court had a similar analysis and conclusion with respect to Jay Cote's argument that its access to justice or its right to access to justice was infringed by the reprisal clause. Essentially, Jay Cote's argument was that the reprisal clause violated, which is another foundational principle of the Canadian judicial system, the right to have reasonable access to justice and reasonable access to the courts because it disincentivized parties from taking legal action against the municipality, even for actionable wrongs. So like the rule of law, the court stated that access to justice was not an independent wrong, but was rather constitutionally protected, this time through a, a specific provision of the Constitution being Section 96 of the Constitution Act. The Constitution, however, the court noted, only applies to legislation or direct rules and does not apply to contractual or tender provisions issued by a municipality. So therefore, the court stated that Jay Cote could not rely on the constitutionally protected rule of law or the constitutionally protected right of access to the courts to invalidate the reprisal clause because it was not legislation, it was a contractual term. The court noted that the right to access to justice and access to the courts is not absolute. And unlike legislation, which is constitutionally protected, contracts are voluntary agreements between parties. Contracts are governed by the doctrines of contract law, such as freedom of contract and commercial certainty, and they're not governed by the Constitution. So the court also noted that the reprisal clause did not effectively bar access to the courts, but it rather it provided contractors with a choice of whether or not to litigate against the city. The speculative lost opportunity cost if a contractor chose to litigate against the city did not create a direct barrier to the courts required to establish an infringement of the right. So essentially what the court stated is that when you're a contractor and you're faced with this issue, you haven't lost your access to the courts. You still very much have a right to litigate against the city, but you now need to be mindful that such litigation might preclude you from being awarded a tender in the future. So it's a lost opportunity cost and it's a business decision essentially that you need to decide, do we want to proceed with our litigation or do we want to continue with the opportunity to be awarded contracts? And the fact that this reprisal clause didn't effectively bar litigation against the city, the court noted was evidenced by the fact that 
Jay Cote had actually commenced two actions against the city. So the court noted that it's interesting that a party can make the argument that they've been effectively barred from access to the courts in a proceeding where they're suing the city, alleging that it has infringed upon its constitutionally protected right to access to the courts. So as the right of access to the courts is not absolute, as found by the court, to establish the violation of the right, a party must show that it suffered undue hardship as a result of the infringement. And again, based on the fact that Jay Cote was currently in the court when it was making the argument, the court found that it could not show that it suffered any undue hardship as it was not effectively barred from the courts. So there's a number of takeaways that can be found from this case, which seems like a rigid approach to sad circumstances where Jay Cote was forced to litigate involving the death of one of its employees because the city was unwilling to go to arbitration or to even accept the findings of the the non-binding referee. But I guess the major takeaway of this case is that reprisal clauses are not unconstitutional. And the reason I specify not unconstitutional versus constitutional is because the court's analysis was that the Constitution didn't apply to contractual terms, which are governed by the private law. It didn't really provide an analysis of whether the reprisal clause would violate the Constitution if the Constitution applied to reprisal clauses. So a takeaway from this case is that, at a minimum, if the Constitution did apply, for a reprisal clause to violate the Constitution, it must directly and effectively bar access to the courts. Not this kind of hypothetical, well, we might be dissuaded from litigating if this clause was was in effect. It must directly preclude someone or a business from accessing the courts. But on top of that, a contractor must establish that it suffered undue hardship as a result of the clause. So as stated before, the right of access to the courts isn't absolute. So not only must the contractor establish that it's directly and effectively been barred from access to the court, it must also establish that it's suffered undue hardship as a result of being denied access to the courts. So in this case, even when a contractor has been legitimately wronged by a municipality, which seems to be the case here, it must weigh the value of commencing a legal proceeding to the right to right the wrong against the potential lost opportunity cost of not working with the city on future projects. So this, again, is essentially a business decision. You need to decide what am I going to get out of this litigation and is it going to be worth me potentially being barred from future projects as a result? So that is, in effect, the substance of the British Columbia Court of Appeal decision in Jay Cote and the city of Burnaby. But a similar issue was considered by the Ontario Superior Court of Justice Divisional Court in the decision of Interpaving Limited and City of Greater Sudbury. This case, less so involving an analysis about the constitutionality of a reprisal clause, dealt with the validity and legitimacy of the city of Sudbury's decision to debar a contractor from working on its projects in the future. And unlike the Jay Cote case, this actually did involve legislation. It involved a city of Sudbury bylaw, which governed the procurement policies and procedures, and it allowed the city to exclude bidders who were engaged in litigation with the city, had a history of poor performance, or had demonstrated abusive or threatening conduct with city employees. The city debarred the plaintiff, Interpaving Limited, from bidding on its projects based on all three of these reasons. After this debarment decision, Interpaving sought judicial review of the city's decision on the basis that the bylaw was contrary to law and the rules of natural justice. And I'll say that a lot of this case, if you read the decision, deals with this argument about violation of the rules of natural justice, but more specifically in terms of whether Interpaving was denied procedural fairness when the city sought to debar it. And essentially what happened was Interpaving was not provided with any opportunity at all 
it was notified of the debarment decision and wasn't provided with an opportunity before the debarment decision to respond. And after it was notified of the decision, it submitted, there was many meetings with lawyers and discussions between the parties. And ultimately the city agreed to reconsider the decision. Interpaving submitted formal arguments on the reconsideration and the city still decided to uphold the debarment decision. So a lot of this was dealing with procedural fairness. Was Interpaving provided with a proper opportunity to respond to the allegations made against it in the debarment decision? And the court held that no, it wasn't at first. Interpaving was not provided with sufficient notice of the debarment decision and therefore an opportunity to respond to it. And this is a denial of procedural fairness. It deserves the right to be able to make submissions on its behalf as to why the debarment decision would be improper. However, the court noted that when the city of Sudbury decided to reconsider the decision and allowed Interpaving to properly respond, there was no longer a denial of procedural fairness. And therefore, it upheld the decision on judicial review of the city. But while that might be the crux of the decision, more interestingly, I guess, for the purpose of this podcast was its decision or its analysis in dismissing Interpaving's claim that the bylaw, which allowed it to debar Interpaving for one reason being that Interpaving commenced litigation against the city in the past, whether this was contrary to law. And in dismissing Interpaving's claim, quite importantly, what the court noted is that a municipality and a municipal corporation has essentially the same rights as a private business to decide who it's going to do business with. And the court noted that there's a number of good reasons for debarring companies that are involved in litigation with the city. These include the effect that the litigation would have on the party's working relationship and the fear of doing business with a party prone to litigation. So even if it involves a bylaw, which it did not in the Jay Cote case, the court still determined that this doesn't necessarily provide access to the courts and it's not contrary to law to allow what was in effect a reprisal clause by precluding parties from working with the city that had sued the city in the past. So what are the takeaways from this case? First of all, as Brandon talked at length about how an owner has an implied duty to treat all compliant bids fairly and equally, an owner still can effectively choose who is eligible to participate in the bidding process and in effect submit bids. So like a private citizen, a municipality has the right to choose who it enters into a contract with. And for an example, in private business, you wouldn't necessarily want to enter into a contract with a party that was currently suing you or had recently sued you. There'd be bad blood. It would be awkward. It wouldn't be the way to most efficiently do business. So it's reasonable for the court to say that a municipality doesn't need to enter a contract with someone who it has kind of an acrimonious history with, at least a, a recently acrimonious history or a current acrimonious history. And while it may seem petty to preclude people from bidding on projects, there are legitimate business purposes to debarment. So that's essentially what the court said. So a practical takeaway is that if you do find yourself the subject of a debarment decision, at least from the areas of procedural fairness, the city does have an obligation to provide you with sufficient notice of its intention to debar, and you have a right to adequately respond to the city's claims before a decision is reached. So if you're not provided with that opportunity, that's a very valid basis for judicial review. Now, before I conclude on reprisal topics, I just wanted to point out one area that I was thinking is potentially interesting with the court's decision that municipalities 
like private citizens have the right to choose who it enters into contracts with. And the court upheld this bylaw allowing for reprisal clauses purely on the basis that businesses are allowed to conduct their affairs as they choose, their, their corporate affairs as they choose. And if they feel it's in their interest to preclude a party, unless there's any malicious intent, that's acceptable. So the court, I guess, looking out for these municipal corporations say, well, it should be able to structure its business and conduct its affairs how it chooses. And I guess the underlying presumption with that is that municipalities are public bodies. They deal with taxpayer dollars. They're meant to maximize their revenues and therefore benefit the public at large. And therefore, the court isn't interested in protecting these private citizens with claims against the municipality if the municipality is just trying to conduct its affairs as efficiently and as effectively as possible. But I guess the converse to that, and it's kind of something that's stated by the Canadian Construction Association that I've referred to is what impact does this have on the public in general? Is the city being petty, as I said before, and not accepting these contractors and debarring these contractors who could have lower bids, who could provide better work purely on the basis that they've been frustrated with litigation and they don't want to work with a party who's suing them. At what point does this go too far and does this actually hurt taxpayers? So that's kind of an interesting note to leave that on because that essentially concludes where the law is with reprisal clauses right now. And I think what Brandon and I have said so far has been a nice overview of the law. But if you're interested in learning more about these issues or about bidding and tendering in general, we both encourage you to seek out the sixth edition of Bidding and Tendering, What is the Law?, which is co-edited by Andrea Lee and Marcus Rotterdam, both of our firm, Glayhold Bowles LLP. The text is a valuable resource that not only explains the basic legal principles of the law of bidding and tendering, but also provides updates on changes to construction law since the publication of the fifth edition in 2015. Essentially, it's your one-stop shop for the law on bidding and tendering. Thanks for that, Neil. Well, that brings us to the end of this podcast episode. We hope you enjoyed. Thank you all for listening and have a great rest of your day. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. And visit glayholt.com for more information. If you have any questions, email us at info at We look forward to having you join us again.